Okay, take your Bible this morning and turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're down to verse 18 in these next uh, couple of lessons. I've entitled them Mount Sinai. You know where Mount Sinai is. It's where the law was given. And Mount Zion. This will be part one. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. I, I, I was just before I... As Kenny was praying, it popped into my mind, and it, it's something that we cannot ignore, we cannot overlook, and we cannot sidestep. Uh, is, is, and what, what you have when, with these, and I'll just kind of give you a synopsis right here at the beginning. Mount Sinai represents the law. We know that. Mount Zion represents, and it's Z-I-O-N, Mount Zion, it, it's the covenant of grace. It's talking about New Jerusalem. It's talking about that city and that church which all God's elect and every generation make up the body of Christ. And so to, to, when we think about, you know, I always think about there's always twos throughout the Scripture. Just two, not three. You know, I mean, I, I was always taught in false religion that there's, you know, that there's kind of a middle ground. There's a gray area. No, there's not. There's only, there's only two ways. There's the way of grace and the ways of work, the way of the law. The way of the law, the way of works, the way of obedience and morality and sincerity is a hope and cause of salvation. It always ends the same way. It ends in death. The way of grace, what does it always end in? It ends in life. The Apostle Paul made this very clear. He says, and if it be by grace, this is Hebrews, Romans chapter 11, verse 6. And if it be by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, you can't... Is the, salvation is not a combination of the two. We got to get that right. Because I'm going to tell you what. If, if you think that something that you do or something you've been enabled to, even if you attribute to God the Holy Spirit, how did that work out for that, that uh, the Pharisee? I thank thee, Father. I thank thee, God, that I'm not a murderer. I'm not a liar. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not like this publican. I fast twice a day. I give tithes of all that I've got. Our Lord said to this man, what? Talked about the man that cried, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said, this man went home justified. But the other, what was his end? The same end as those in Mark, Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord, have we not? Have we not? Have we not? And how, how many people, friend, family, and foe, are running around at the top of their lungs crying out, Lord, Lord, and crying out and holding it tenaciously to this idea that it's something that I do or something that God the Holy Spirit has enabled me to do that makes the difference between life and death. Listen, that is a lie that comes straight from the devil himself. So turn back over. You don't have to turn there, but you, you ought to be there. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, here in verse 18, this is where we want to start this morning. He says, for you are not come. And I emphasize that. Now, this, there's two groups. 
And he says of those that are believing justified saints, what does he say conclusively to them? You are not come to which mountain? You not come to the mountain that could not be touched. Uh-huh. That might you know, the, the come to the mount that might not be might be touched and that burn with fire and are under blackness and darkness and tempest. In this section here, starting in verse eighteen, going all the way down, really through verse twenty-three, the apostle mentions two mountains. And I've already said this, but I'll say it again: Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, Mount Sinai, when we think about it in the Scriptures, it always represents the Old Covenant, the law, the law of Moses, that law that was given by God to the nation of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. And I think about this. This was such a frightening experience. It was such an awesome experience that Moses himself was changed by it all. Was he not? He came down off the mountain, and he was a different creature when he went up there. And he was. Mount Zion, on the other hand, represents the new covenant, the gospel of God's grace given to Christ, the God's elect, the church, both Jew and Gentile, and it's given to us exclusively through Christ our Lord. I always think about this when I think about these two covenants. Think about the words that are recorded in the Gospel of John. For the law was given by Moses. That's all he could do. What could he do? He could give what he had been, had been presented to him. And the thing you got to keep in mind, under that old Mosaic economy, under that Mosaic law, Moses was required to be obedient to that covenant. Every, listen to this, every Israelite, whether they were elect or non-elect, all of them as a nation were bound to that covenant to be obedient to it, to be there for the sacrifices, to present everything that was involved under that old covenant. He said the law was given to national, and that's the thing we got to keep in mind. It was not given to the Gentiles. It was given to national Israel, these people through whom the Lord Jesus Christ would come. But he says this. He says the law was given by Moses. It says but, but but is in, is in the little ampersand or whatever you call him, a bracket thing. It wasn't in the original. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. It wasn't given. What did it do? It came. <laughs> he didn't make it possible so you could either accept it or reject it. He fulfilled it. He accomplished it. It came for who? It came for all whom he represented, all of us. See, the Apostle Paul here, he, he, he's addressing believers here, those who had fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for refuge and had fled from the wrath to come, those who had believed God's promise of salvation condition on Christ, his blood, his righteousness alone. And his goal is that their hearts, and this is so important, his goal is that their hearts would be established with grace, that they would be insistent, dogmatic, and uncompromising 
on the only way of salvation. That's, that's, that's the way of peace. Follow after peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Well, which holiness is it without which no man shall see the Lord? It ain't mine. It's not even mine that I could produce if I could by obedience to the law. What, what is the only holiness without which no man shall see the Lord? He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made what? Not the righteousness of the law, and not the righteousness of a man seeking to obey the law. We, sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and even by choice, we are made the righteousness of God. Let that sink into your mind as a sinner this morning. Is there any better news? I'm made. The righteousness of God in him. The only way we can enter into that is by faith. Huh? Again, <laughs> this stuff drove me crazy. Huh? Things have happened in my life this week that have just put me on, on my edge. <laughs> I don't say that. To, to try to make light of it. It's just it's a reality. I, I live every day. I know you do too if we're honest. And that's, that's, that's what I love about true Christianity. We don't have to pretend. I know that in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Maybe you, maybe you don't think that. Well, if you don't think that, you don't believe the gospel. You hadn't met this Lord I've met. You don't see what you do in light of what he did. See? Because the standard of righteousness is not your mama or your daddy or your grandpa or the best person you could ever possibly imagine on this planet. There has only been one who's honored and magnified the law, fulfilled every jot and tittle of it, and it's not one of us, and it's not anybody out there watching it. It's not any man born or woman, let me be clear, any man or woman born of a woman in our generations. The only one that was, was who? He was a unique individual. He was both God and man in one person. Even our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's wanting them to be insistent. Look, there's only one way. What's the way? What's the way we cannot compromise? Anybody here, anybody out there, any friend, any family member, any foe that I have, the only way any of us can go to heaven is what? We've got to have the righteousness of God. I don't care, I don't care what you think. And, and see, that's the thing. Get your feelings out of this thing. I know that's impossible, but still, we've got, we got to detach ourselves from this world. Now, we do. And we have to look at things the way God's Word tells us to look at them. And when we look at our family members who have not rested in Christ's righteousness, they might, they might be my, my sweetest, kindest, compassionate a relative or friend that would give me the shirt off their back and do anything for me. But if they have not this righteousness, they are, they're, they're lost. Unless the Lord is merciful to them, they're without hope. And no amount of, of, of future obedience on their part or future morality or future any future faith, future repentance, none of it. I mean, none of it. 
can equal out that which God demands that we have, that which you and I know we cannot compromise on. That's why we follow peace with all men. Peace where? Peace in Christ. In righteousness without which no man shall see the Lord. His goal is that they, they won't compromise the gospel. Compromise it in what sense? By speaking peace to those men and women where there's no ground to peace. See, that's, what, that's what your friends and family want. They just want you to say, we're, we're all all right. We're, we're, we're all trying, you know, we're, we're trying to get to the same place. You know, we just got a little different view. We got a little doctrinal difference on some things. Is that the case? Is it just a little doctrinal difference? Is it the way we cross the T or dot the I? Is that the only problem that we've got between what, what we preach and say and believe and hope in and what they preach and believe and say? Because if it is, what it, we quit. No need for us to be there. There's no, listen, there's no need for there to be so many different denominations. If that's all that matters, we can all join together and lock arms and sing kumbaya. And he wanted them to have, it, this, this is the thing that I want more than anything else. And I know this is what the apostle wanted here. He wanted them to have full assurance of final glory through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet he was just like John. These things have I written unto you that you might know you have eternal life. Isn't that what you want more than anything else, to know you have eternal life? How many people do, do we know? That's a lot of no's here. <laughs> How many people do we know that are hoping against all hope that they, they've got it when they get, they're, they're close to their deathbed, worried to death about whether or not they're going to make it? Now, I don't want to be too cocksure for heaven, but I do. do I? I don't want to disbelieve what he tells me. This is the promise he's promised me, right? What's the promise? He, this is the promise that he hath promised, eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. These are the things that he's written that you might know that you have eternal life. Some people seem to think that the, the, the best glory you can give to God is doubt your salvation. That, that's the most disrespectful thing you can do. You, you know what you're calling into question when you doubt whether or not you're saved, when you start looking around and become a fruit inspector and trying to figure out, well, I, I, I'm probably not saved because of thus and so. We are neglecting the promise. And you say, well, I, I, Richard, don't talk like that. People will, will they'll just... They'll, they'll throw caution to the wind. Listen, I believed and hoped in this gospel for 36, nearly 37 years. And not once has the freeness and the fullness and the simplicity of complete and eternal salvation in Christ told me, Kenny, in my mind, you know what? I can do whatever the heck I want to do. I've never heard that from the gospel. Never wanted that from the gospel. I, I, if you're like me, and I know you are, if we're regenerated, converted, we all have the same spirit. We, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, do we, by which we are sealed to the day of redemption. None of us do. And so what do we seek to do? We get up every morning, seek to honor him, seek to obey him, seek to trust his promise, seek to live according to what we know his revealed will by way of command is. But at the end of the day, when we've done it all, where's our hope? 
Not in that that we've done. Not in that we've been able to do. Our hope's in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so what's the only remedy for all these things that he wanted? And all these things that you and I want for ourselves. The only remedy for doubt and compromise is what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the completer of faith. You see that? He said, let us run with patience the race that's set before us. Looking unto Jesus. And what he said, looking unto Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. I tell you, as believing justified saints, we have to see ourselves as secure in salvation and sure for heaven. Not because we have met or we will ever meet any conditions for salvation, but because Christ, what's he done? He's already met every condition, every requirement for me is my surety, my substitute, my redeemer, my mediator, and my friend. That's where confidence starts, right there. And here's another thing. We, we must never turn to our works at any time. This is a hard one to do. We must never turn to our works at any time for assurance of salvation. I used to use this statement. I've had people still come up to me, and they, when you ask them, are you, are, do you think you'll go to heaven? The answer is always going to be this, I hope so. Right? And then if you pursue it about the hope, you, you know, if you're ever talking to a friend or relative, I'm just trying to, we, we've all had conversations with friends and with relatives, and these things come up, and this is just the way I found to approach it. When they say hope, we'll ask them, well, listen, you know, well, then what's your hope? They say, well, and this is, this is the common answer. It's not that I doubt him. I doubt me. That sounds good and pious on the surface, doesn't it? It sounds like that would give glory to God. I don't doubt him. I doubt. Where in this book have you ever been told to put any confidence in yourself anywhere? Huh? What, what did Paul say to those at Philippi? In Philippians chapter 3, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus. Oh. No confidence in the flesh. And then Paul follows that up. If anybody has any reason to have any confidence in the flesh, I got more. But then he turns around after he lists all of his more, and what does he say it all is? Uh-huh. His word's not mine. And he had a list. Go read it for yourself in Philippians 3. An impressive list that... Most, I'd say 99.9% of religious people in this world say, if anybody's going to heaven, somebody's got a list compiled like this, they're going. And he said, those things that were gained for me, those things that elevated me, those things that convinced me or others that I was saved, he said, what do I count them? I 
count them dumb and lost. That I might, listen to this, that I might win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is by the works of the law, but that righteousness which is by faith, not in, faith of Jesus Christ. By his faithfulness to the covenant. Folks, our hopes are melting, met in Christ Jesus alone. And see, here's the thing. These people that he were writing to, they were Jews, most of them. And being Jews, what had happened in their life? They'd been schooled in what? How'd they been raised by mom and dad and grandma and grandpa? They'd been raised under the law. And they'd been told to be obedient to the law. And they had been taught wrongly. Now, this is where, where most of covenant Israel, the, those that were national Israel, were taught wrong by well-intentioned friends and family and old religious people. They had been taught that their heritage is a Jew and their participation in the law of Moses, what did it do? It recommended them to God. Folks, that was opposed to what the law was ever given for to begin with. That's opposed to the gospel. The, the gospel means what? Good news. It's a declaration of good news, a good hope. And for them to sit there and think that my obedience to the law somehow recommends me to God, that's not a good hope. In no way, show, way, whatever. I can't get it out. It's not in my notes and I can't get it out. And see, Paul tells them to be dogmatic in the gospel and he tells them, look, you've got to divorce yourselves from that law and you've got to divorce yourself from that religion. This thing was done. That's the thing that most people that study and write commentaries on Hebrews never take into consideration the time lapse that has occurred between when Christ cried, it is finished, and the veil was rent into, and that thing had, set up, had been set aside by, by way of perfect fulfillment. It no longer was in force. They had sewed that dadgum veil back together and had gone right back to doing what Christ had accomplished. And people are doing it today. And they're not even over in Jerusalem. They're in these various churches. And what are they doing? They are still sewing that veil together. And you got to realize this. Hey, this. These things just keep popping in. This is what gets me in trouble, man. It does. <laughs> the, the thing was, in, under that old Levitical system, even the saints of God, the true elect in, is, in national Israel, those that were believers, Joshua and Caleb, remember those two guys? They could never go in there where that veil was at. If they had stepped inside of there and sought to approach that God, this God was unapproachable through that old law except by who? By the high priest and him only once a year and that not without blood. So it was a separatist system. They had no hope in there except as they saw in that what? The promise in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And they, they had to look upon it. and Well, this would be almost impossible for a Jew to do back then. They had to look at that stuff and consider it for what it was. Ordained by God, instituted by God, 
had been obeyed and and had been carried on for many, 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 many years. Those that were now practicing it, you know what they were? Hmm? Anybody got a clue? Idolaters. <laughs> Let that sink in. They were worshiping Jehovah. They call it, they said he was worshiping Jehovah. But it was idolatry. Pure and simple. They had, to, they had to realize that everything that was being done in there, what was going to be the result of it? Death. Destruction. And those who refuse, who claim some merit, or that they or anybody else could be saved by their particular... Well, you know, they don't believe like us, but they're going to be okay. Paul says, those people have that, that will compromise on that, they're lost and they've never truly repented. And the same thing applies to us in, in our generation because men and women by nature, even though they're not under the law of Moses, what do men by nature think? Write this down. This is what they always think. They always think Romans chapter 10, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and going about to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, those who refused it, claimed some merit in it, thought that their obedience to it, their reformation or their morality or their faith or their perseverance made the difference, they're just as idolatrous today as those Jews were back in national Israel. Now look at the terrors of Mount Sinai. Boy, that's a whale of an introduction, eh? For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burn with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken unto them anymore. But that, that, that speaks a lot of grace right there, doesn't it? Huh? Doesn't it? Think about the situation. They say they they like this position they were in so much that when they hear all this thunder and they see all this light, they hear the voice from heaven. They beseech Moses, don't ever let him speak to us again. And they, when you go over and read it in Old Testament, they said, don't let him speak to us lest we die. There's no promise of life in any of this as they stand there, for they could not endure that which was commanded. You see that? Even these people that first got it 2,000 or more years ago, I don't know how long ago it was. I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a genealogy bunch. Yeah. I just figured out a friend of mine this week figured, made me, corrected me on that BCA. BC. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, my Bible has got those 800 and it's counting backwards. And I, I, I made an innocent statement. I thought, who, you know, when did they decide to go to zero? He said, Richard, I think they put those dates in after the fact. You know, it's not, it's not that they were going along there and all of a sudden one day they said, we're going, we're going positive now. We're going A to yeah. So it wasn't that they got to that particular point and they started over. But however long ago it was that those people were standing there, the ones that received it from the hand of Moses, they're afraid of it. And they couldn't keep, they couldn't keep it. 
And I tell you, the Old Testament is a testament to the failure of anybody to do what? To obey the law. I did, when I read words like he said, so and so terrible, verse 21, so terrible was the sight. No, wait, wait. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, you had your prize donkey. He walked up and touched the mountain. What happened? You had to stone your donkey. I, think about this. If one of your children had walked up and touched the mountain. Huh? Could you envision that? If you're, if you're, if you, say you as a parent had one child, one son, one daughter, and that daughter walked up and touched that mountain, it shall be stoned. Are thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, Listen, this is this is the man who received the law. I exceedingly fear, and I quake. Let that let that picture settle into your mind. I, when, I, when I read read words like this, and, and I, I, I consider, I, I wrote this into my notes this morning as I was sitting there. When I, I think about the awesome and, and, and the frightening event that they were witnessing here, I can't help but think of what Paul wrote to those Galatian believers. When he told them this, he said, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Huh? He told them again in Galatians 3.21, is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, barely righteousness should have come how? By that law that these people are scared of. Paul tells them and he tells you and me that all who look for salvation in that old covenant they find it to be exactly what God tells us it is. What is that whole old covenant? According to, I think it's first or second Corinthians 3, I think. Might be first Corinthians 3, I don't know. He calls it administration of death. That's all it can do. It can only kill. It can only show, show failure. And the thing that's so amazing about this, long before the law was given on Mount Sinai, you know what? The gospel promise was given first. Before there was ever a law, there was a promise. Before man ever fell, what was it? There was a surety. There was a Savior. There was a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And before man ever fell into sin, and then immediately after the fall, when man had fallen, what did God reveal? His promise. He said to, the one, said to them both, to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I've been studying the last couple of weeks, and I, I'm going to do it. I don't think I'll do it. You know, most people try to do it at Easter time, but I've been looking at those seven sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And I've been thinking about doing a series of messages on each one of those seven sayings, but... One of the things that, that I think about, and you think about the curse, and you think about our Lord Jesus Christ, that, you know, that he shall make his soul a sacrifice for sin, and he shall see the travail of his soul. And, and that word travail, you know what it references back to? It's 
it's the pains. I don't, we can't, me as men, we can't enter into this. It's the pains that a woman experiences when she gives birth. And he, when he sees the dread, he, he tells it to want, tells what, what is part of the woman's curse. That in, how, how did he state it back over in Genesis 3? He told her, listen to you. Uh, he said, under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply. This is the curse. This is part of the curse pronounced on Adam and all his rep- all that he represented. Under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shall thou, in, in travail, that's the same word. In sorrow and travail shalt thou bring forth children. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. You know what? He bore the curse. Women have travail when they're born. Our Lord Jesus Christ, what? When he brought forth his children, birthed us through his obedience unto death, it's travail. Nobody suffered like our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody. Nobody endured the pain. Listen, there, not one soul has endured the wrath that our Lord Jesus Christ endured. Not one. You want to see the wrath of God? Look one place. Look to this glorious person who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, hanging on a tree, and hear his solemn words, Elo, Elo, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The wrath of God fell on him, period. For who? Everybody? No. For who? Those that he's given birth to. Those who he accomplished salvation for. Long before God gave the law at Sinai, God revealed that Christ would be the only substitute who would meet every condition required by satisfying law and justice on behalf of his elect. And this is grace. And it's the only way a sinner can be saved. Sinners have have always been commanded, since the beginning, what have they been commanded? To believe the promise. To rest in the promised one. To rest in what? Salvation conditioned on Christ alone, the Messiah. Our parents looked for him. Hmm? Didn't they? Why were they looking for him? Because they had seen by type the only way sin could be put away. God killed an innocent. I guarantee you, they told their two boys about that every day. Shame on us if we don't tell ours. Huh? We know they told them because when they came out there to worship, one of them came the right way. And one of them came the other way. Came the way, the, the way these Jews were seeking to approach God through all this old law and everything involved in it. They... Abraham believed God. Before the law, there was no law. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him. It was accounted to him for righteousness. God's always made that clear. Salvation is how? It's by grace, by grace alone. And so that old covenant law was added by God, not to abolish God's promise of salvation condition on Christ, but to what? But to reveal the necessity 
of salvation by Christ alone. And the apostles' aim is that, that these that you see and I see and that these people that he was writing to, that they'd see the greatness of grace revealed in the gospel by comparing it with the terror of the Lord under that whole covenant. You think about it, at Mount Sinai, the whole congregation, the whole representation of, of God was as one, he, when he was there on that mount, all he was seen as is what? A sovereign and severe judge. That's all it was. Nothing there revealed God's mercy and nothing revealed his grace. Thunder, earthquake, fire, no indication of reconciliation. And the apostle doesn't mention any of the particulars of that, that old covenant. He doesn't, he doesn't mention here. That, he just talks about the hearing of God's voice and the thunder. He doesn't mention the priesthood. He doesn't mention the, the covenant. He doesn't mention any of the sacrifices. Why? Because what has he already told these people? It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can put away sin. He had already told them that if there was a change of the priesthood, what is it? There's a change of the covenant. The priesthood was done away with. The only thing he mentions, what? Terror. The terror of the law. Because that whole covenant in and of itself was a ministration of death and condemnation. And you've got to remember, many of these believers, they were being tempted by friends and family to compromise the gospel that they had given at least mental agreement to. And they were being called on by their family members and their friends to compromise it under the pretense of what? We just all want to be at peace. We want to get along. They were, they, they were the Jews that were still in this old system, they would have been content and then left them alone if all they'd had to do is say, y'all are okay. We're all going to heaven. Y'all are going to get there. Right? Many of them have already done that. And they did it how? By going back to it. They departed from it. Many had a lot of their friends and families that were still in that old legal system. And I'm sure that you and I, we have family and friends just like those who all, they always try to get us to do what? Just it, It's amazing how my in-laws drop little words all the time. They know. Your family knows. I'm telling you, if you've ever expressed to them what you believe, they know. Now, they, they'll try to be kind and they'll try to get beyond it, but most of the time they can't. It's a sticking point. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ dealt with this. He said in Matthew chapter 10, if any man love father, mother, brother, sister more than me, what? Not worthy of me. I always ask myself this and I ask you this. Who is your family? Think about that. Who's my family? It ain't got nothing to do with flesh and blood, pardon the bad English. Oh, I tell you, I, I, people say, you just don't know. I know. I had a mom and daddy, just like you do. They're dead and gone. I had grandparents that I loved tremendously, just as much or more than you love your family and friends. But they compromised the gospel. They didn't rest in Christ. Their hope wasn't in a, a righteousness 
that they didn't produce, didn't maintain. Here's a couple of good questions for you to think about. Why do you and I refuse to compromise the gospel? Why is that? Why are we so dogmatic? Why is it that why is it that I can't go back to Manny, Louisiana and assimilate back into all that that I spent the first part of my life? Why can't I go back to Broad Acres Baptist Church and go back to being a deacon? Why can't I go back there? Why can't you go back to your former religion? Or how about this? Why do we refuse to speak peace to our friends or to our family members who are still in false religion? Why not? I can't, like, I can't tell my brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws, my nieces, my nephews, I can't tell them they're okay. For me to do so would be what? would be to lie to them. It would be to go against what God's Word tells them. And see, the reason I won't do so and the reason we can't do so is why? If we compromise, that compromise that we settle on that allows them to be at peace with us and us at peace with them, what is it? It's deadly. It's deadly. And see, we see here how natural conscience conviction under the law, it does do some things. What did it do here? It produced fear, didn't it? And doesn't the law do that? The Ten Commandments? I know what it used to do with me. These people, these Jews, they admitted God's holy. They admitted they were sinners. Why? Don't let him speak to us anymore lest we die. They understood the wages of sin's death. They understood the soul that sinneth did surely die. And they're saying, don't let him speak or we'll die. So the question then to you and me, and we'll close with this this morning, how can we tell the difference between just natural conscience conviction and between Holy Spirit conviction? Can we know? Should we know? I tell you, we better know. We better know. Holy Spirit conviction, you know what it does? It always leads the sinner to the same place. It leads them to find relief, the only place relief is found. Where? In Christ, his blood, his righteousness alone from first to last. The majority of these Israelites who stood at Mount Sinai and the majority of their descendants, they continued. How long did they continue? They continued all the way to the end, seeking to establish a righteousness, seeking to keep the law. Folks, they're still trying to keep the law over there. They don't even have the tabernacle in the temple anymore. It's gone. And yet they're still trying to do what? Keep the law. Obey it in its entirety. What about Moses? Huh? You think about this. Moses is an example of one who was under that old covenant, but who believed the gospel. Think about it. He, was un- he told his people, the Jews, God's going to raise a prophet like unto me. And you're going to hear him. You're going to hear him. See, here's the thing. He foresaw the purpose of the law. Moses stood there, and when Israel trembled, we've already read it in our text this morning, when they trembled, he said, I exceedingly. He didn't just he said they trembled. He said, I exceedingly fear and tremble. Just like those other Jews. But there was a difference. His fear and trembling was Holy Spirit conviction. How do I know that? David made it quite clear in Psalm 130. And I'll stop right here. 
Lord, if thou shouldest mark my iniquities, you write my sins down in a book, who you stand? Isn't that what Moses is saying? Lord, if you, you, if you mark that, that's what his fear showed. Their fear showed, it, 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 later on it, it set them on the wrong path. Same, they had a fear, the fear of man. It's not the fear of God. Lord, if you write my sins, you mark my sins in your book, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be, what? Feared, reverenced. Why? Because we know God is so holy, he will not overlook our sins. And we thank God that he has established for us a righteousness in the person, his son, that put away our sins perfectly and completely at Calvary. Okay, you're dismissed to the worship fire.